0: Alright, wow, episode one. This is the first episode of the New University Project podcast, if that wasn't obvious, and it will also be the first episode of a series devoted to the fact that, as stated by Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the universe has no obligation to make sense to you. Obviously on you personally, but let's get straight into it. Let's start off by clarifying the fact that In his quote, Neil deGrasse Tyson does not mean that it's a fruitless endeavor to try to understand the universe or that science is useless and that it can't understand the universe. What he means is that intuitively the universe doesn't have to make sense to you, as in if you were to take the average person and tell them all this stuff about quantum mechanics, and string theory and general relativity and all this. Them saying that doesn't make sense is not a good argument, right? Um, But if you have a bunch of researchers that uh, like work at CERN or are doing any of these things and they say, yeah, it takes a little bit of getting used to But here's the data. Here's how we can tell that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle uh, holds true, Um, or you know something else that Einstein's general relativity uh, is actually correct, or I don't know Curie's radiation. If we're talking about the early 20th century, that them giving you data but saying, okay, you have to just sort of change how you think about things. That is a cogent argument, right? So Dr. Tyson does not mean that anyone's stupid or that it's not useful to go into science or anything like that. He just means that sometimes that would change the way you think when it comes to the more, um, let's say, exotic of uh, the physical processes. Alright, uh, with that out of the way, let's go into a quick introduction to quantum mechanics. Because I'm going to be using quantum mechanics uh, throughout this series um, to drive home the fact that uh, intuition at our sort of macro scale, uh, looking at cars and baseballs and houses and mountains and the earth and all this... It doesn't really uh, translate to a lot of I say before the more you know exotic physical phenomena so quantum mechanics it's a, a little bit of a buzzword people just sort of throw it around like according to quantum mechanics this or there's nowhere way quantum physicists because I don't know like it, it's a measure of intelligence or something it's like it's like saying that you're a rocket scientist before like oh I'm not I, I ain't no rocket scientist or anything like that so quantum mechanics is pretty much the study of the very 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 incredibly small I'm not talking about like I'm not talking about small as in like the size of a marble the size of uh, a pea or a, the ball on the end of a ballpoint pen or the tip of like a safety pin. That's not with that small. We're talking about things way, way, way smaller, on the scale of atoms, right? And for some processes, we even go smaller than the atom. We go to electrons. We go to protons. We go to neutrons. We go to quarks, which is. Um, I mean quarks are like a a different type of exotic particle We go to muons another type of exotic particle leptons So The why is it very small why am I using that as an example of something that's not super intuitive Well Let's take it step by step the foundational tenet of quantum mechanical research which is a strange term but it that's the name is called the heisenberg uncertainty principle which states that it, within the confines of quantum phenomena and even outside you cannot bilaterally that means uh, from two directions or simultaneously—that means at the same time—measure uh, the speed. He phrased as momentum, but the speed and the position of any particle, or any object. What this means is, how do I put it? So, if you, imagine an electron, imagine you're. At uh, the center of an atom looking up, right? And you see an electron goes by. Um, some quantum physicists will say that doesn't happen, but whatever. Let's say that an electron goes by. If you look at it, you will not be able to accurately measure both the position and the speed of that electron. You won't. This is not because of something with the conscious or some sort of magical property of the human mind. Some people call it the observer effect. It's not really the fact that there is an observer. It's the act of measuring something that changes how things work at that level. So let's think about it this way. If you were going to measure the position... Let's just talk about, like, something easy of a book that's on your table. Go to measure the position. You have to see it, right? You have to see it. Photons have to come down from your desk lamp or from the sun. You have to hit the book and it bounce into your eyes, into your retinas, and they have to be processed, right? But if those photons weren't bouncing off the object, you wouldn't be able to see it. So you couldn't tell its position. Now that you can see it, you can say, okay, the book is next to that coffee cup or it's laying on top of that envelope or something like that. But if we take that, if we scale that way down to the electron and you have to, and photons have to come in, hit the electron and bounce back towards you, that's going to change what the electron is. So a lot of people know about um, these sort of like uh, Vegas, like street signs, like the neon lights, you know? And the reason why, that, why those work is because you're, this is sort of like the reverse process of what I'm talking about. But what they're using is they're using electricity in order to disturb the electrons uh, in their orbit around neon or argon or helium or whatever else. They're using that to disturb the uh, sort of orbital path of the electron, its energy level. Like how far it is from the nucleus. They're using it to disturb that. And when an electron moves energy levels, it either emits or absorbs a photon. And I'm saying this not to shoehorn some fun fact or anything like that, but to tell you guys that photons have a really, really big effect on the position of an electron to the point where if an electron is in its uh, energy level, it's in its um, like base orbital path around a nucleus and it gets hit by a photon, it's going to jump to a higher energy level. It's going to move its position further away from the neutron. So now let's go back to you looking up and quote, quote unquote, seeing the thing. You won't be able to see it, but whatever. Let's say you have magical, like, comic book superhero eyesight. And you can see the electron going through without any photons. You have to measure it now. Let's say you have, like, a 1990s cop radar gun and you're going to point it at the electron and get its speed so you do that and the gun shoots a bunch of electron uh not electrons a bunch of photons uh because i mean radio is just a different form of light right it's just really long wavelength but it's shooting a bunch of photons straight at the electron they bounce off the electron and come back. And now you have a reading. You say, whoa, the electron was moving at 60% the speed of light or something like that. Right? Wow, the electron moving really fast. Wait, where'd it go? Right? Because you just shot a photon at it. And we already know that if an electron is hit by a photon and it absorbs the photon, it absorbs all that energy, it's going to jump to a different energy level. Is like the electron just like jumped away from you because you're on the nucleus, right? It just jumped away from you So now you don't know the position and the same thing happens if you try and measure its position so Another electron is going through and you have like tiny uh, GPS satellites around the nucleus and you go hey satellites I wonder where this, uh, where this electron is, right? The satellites beam down again, radio waves. They beam down radio waves. They hit the electron. The ra- The radio waves bounce off. And based on how they interact with, uh, the satellites and how the satellites are related to each other and, triangulation, all this sort of thing. Um, the GPS satellites can say, hey, this thing has, this electron has to be over here, and this spits back that location. But you just shot, uh, you just shot uh, photons at it again, right? It's hit by photons, tons of them. Well, in our case, it'll only be one, but whatever. It's hit by a photon, and it absorbs it, Right? Now it jumps, again. So first, your position thing may not even be accurate. But, now it's in a different place. It's at a higher energy level. So how do you know how fast that electron's moving? You can't, because you can't test both at the same time. You can try, but in order to test both things at the same time, you have to have at least two photons, right? Because you're measuring... You have your radar gun, boom, speed. And you have your satellite, boom, position, you know, measurement. And you have those two photons coming in. They hit the electron, but one has to hit first, right? One of them has to hit first, and that's going to change ultimately the location of the photon, but also as a possible result um, or simultaneously without a cause, or whatever. It's gonna change the speed as well. Right? So let's say, the radar gun photon hits the electron first, and then it's like, boom, the electron's gone. Now you know what speed it was at, but you don't know its position, because you can't, the, that second photon that was coming in, it just missed, right? Because the what, electron just said bye, Just left right because it absorbed a photon and now your photon missed and that is why that's an example of how your intuition sort of betrays you because we are used to looking at objects and not thinking about photons and interaction and interference and where the light source is and whether we are trying to find speed first or find or trying to figure out its location first we aren't used to that right i i mean i'm not used to that maybe there's someone who is but your intuition betrays you at that level and that's a really strange thing to get your head around because uh, like even now I'm 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 ex- I'm struggling with it because how do you understand anything in that case well you had to actual you had to um intellectualize it you have to sort of forego any sort of pragmatic any sort of real life experience that you have and listen to the mathematics listen to the data listen to the models and listen to the fact that these models are the best way I'm talking about the quantum models of the universe are the best way we have of predicting what happens There's a famous experiment Called the double slit experiment, and this was done when we didn't really didn't know how light behaved uh, Let alone anything about quantum mechanics (coughs) So you shine this light that's in phase which that's in phase. Um, that's all traveling the same direction. So it's not like you have some light particles that are going straight up and down, and some that are going diagonal, some going sideways. They're all heading straight up and down, or you know forward and backward, or whatever direction suits you. They're all heading in the same direction, but they're two, and you have. The sort of panel that'll absorb the photons except for two slits so some of the photons can go through but when the photons go through if you expect photons to act like a particle and act like a bunch of tiny bullets and going through that hole you expect on the other side you just to see two slits right or well, two like illuminated lines uh, representing the slits but that doesn't happen You get this wide spec. You get this fantastic spectrum of these dots, and they go all the way from like like if this if the slit is like one centimeter wide, they're coming. They they're going from like five centimeters to the left and five centimeters to the right, and there's a spectrum of dots. Of dots between those two lines. And you can't... And even in that spectrum... You can't tell that there were two slits. You can't look at those... At that series of dots... And see two slits anywhere. Because what they found... Was when the light passed through the slits... It came out... In phase... But it started to act like a wave started to act like ripples on the pond where the waves would intersect and where the crests of the waves the tops of the waves where they intersected you get constructive interference you get a you get a brighter spot on on the wall right on where on like behind where the slits are you get a bright spot and where you had a high point and a low point in the waves and when those combined they canceled out so you got a dark spot and because of that you got light dark light dark light dark and you got the spectrum and just blew people's mind because until then there was like massive debate about is it a particle is it a wave and this one was like I I mean it, it looks like a wave guys but, then there were other ones where it looked like a particle. Because, for instance, if you shine light around a corner, it's not going to act like sound and bounce off the walls on the other side and go down. Well, it does a little bit through reflection. But it's not going to bounce off in this sort of echoing, well, like, din that you get in some places with sound, Right? So, people were like, no, it has to act like a particle. So, people were like, no, it has to act like a wave. And this experiment, this double slit experiment, showed, whoa, it acts like a wave. But not only does it act like a wave, it acts like a wave in this really specific way. In this way where it interacts with itself, right? And that. Could be why, at the beginning of the 20th century, we saw such a massive, dare I say, explosion in quantum mechanics. In the study of the very, very small. Because we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know. And I'm guessing that most people listening... Uh, have seen those, that sort of like middle school, high school textbook model of an atom where you have neutrons and protons in the middle, right, in the nucleus, and you have electrons going around. They're sort of like these billiard ball, just they're just spheres, and they're just like orbiting around all of this. They tried the same double slit experiment with electrons, and they got the same result. The same result; they got this, these interference patterns on the wall. These light, dark, light, dark, light, dark spots, and that's crazy. That is so strange, because even when you're talking about like electrical engineering, as it is now we treat electrons as particles. And for the past 60 years, past 70 years, past 100 years, it's worked fine. It's worked okay. I mean, we built like these massive cities and these massive electrical grids and computers and spaceships and just everything. It's all modern technology off the assumption, by and large, that electrons are particles. And it's worked. But, and this is an interesting but, now we're hitting a, we're, we're getting into a problem. Because, <coughs> excuse me, these chips that they're using for CPUs and GPUs, um, like graphics cards and that sort of thing, These transistors, the transistors on the chips, are getting so incredibly small. Transistors just, think of it as like a lever, right? If you apply a current to the transistor, electricity can go through, and if you don't apply electricity, electricity can go through. So, based on that, that's how you interpret data. Just a bunch of on-off switches, zeros and ones, right? But these transistors are getting so incredibly small that you can't contain the electrons. Imagine the electrons in this box. The box is getting so small that the electron's wave nature, the, their wave properties that led to that interference pattern that they found in the electron double slit experiment, those wave properties mean that the electron can get out. It can get out of its box. And if it can get out of the box, that means it's, it could always the transistor can always be on, which makes the transistor useless, which leads into this whole idea of quantum computing, where you forego all classical electrical, engineering ideas of electrons as particles. And you embrace the fact that the electron is both a particle and a wave. Even in those top professional fields, there are issues with the acceptance, and it's a a really difficult thing to accept, right? With the acceptance that things don't happen the way you think they do. And that could be scary. It could be really scary. But. Like, imagine how people felt when they first heard that the Earth went around the Sun and wasn't the other way around. And they were like, wait a second. Wait, what? Wait. Hold on. The earth isn't the center of the universe? Wait, then what does that make us? What does that make humans? They had all of these, like, moral questions about humans' place in the universe and all this. And the Catholic Church famously imprisoned Galileo and persecuted Copernicus. And did all of these horrible, horrible things. Because at the time, and I'm not saying this is the same thing as the Catholic Church now. I'm not going to go on to a rant about that. The Catholic Church at the time, they were heliocentrists. Helio meaning sun, centrist being uh, think that the center of the universe. So... Wait, did I just say heliocentrists? No, they were they were they were geocentrists. They were they thought that Earth was in the center. And Copernicus and Galileo were heliocentrists. It's a podcast guys, it can be kind of informal. But yeah, that's crazy, right? Because all of a sudden, I mean this is how the ways have always been, but to someone who's sitting on the side and just is presented with data with who who is given a telescope as acts is asked to look at like jupiter and mars and venus and look at how they're passing through the sky and see that the earth is not the center that they're that all those planets are actually revolving around the sun that the earth is revolving around the sun as well It seems sort of like you move the Earth. The Earth used to be the center, but now those people—they just switched its place with the sun, right? It's, it's so sudden, and you have to realize that this is the way things have always been. It's the way things have always been. When you learn about Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And you learn that you can't measure things, you can't measure momentum and location at the same time. You're like, uh, wait, what? Is it, it sort of just like doesn't compute to you. It didn't compute for me. Like, I'm trying to tell you guys about this sort of thing. But at the beginning, I was like, as if. I would go back to like reading comics or something, right? But this is the way things have always worked. This is the way things have always been. Quantum mechanics, as far as we can tell, is how the universe works. General relativity, the idea that space time, can bend that large amounts of mass can bend space can bend space how when you go near a black hole which is the which is like the biggest gravitational force you can imagine when you go close to it space is distorted and how if you look at a black hole you can see things behind it because it bends space-time bends the light from things behind it around like a great lens like a giant lens that you call gravitational lensing the 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 phenomenon it actually bends the space-time and bends the light into your eyes it's crazy It's absolutely crazy. And the idea that even... That even... Like that the earth rotates. Right? Because as far as as anyone can tell, there's no... Every, all civilizations, every single civilization, up until the Greeks and the Romans, um, they thought that the earth was there and that the sky was some other thing and that the sky moved. The sky moved around the earth and the earth was stationary. But that we found wasn't true because we could look at the stars and if we assumed that those stars were distinct points of light, they weren't part of a grand celestial sphere or anything, that so they were distinct points of light and that we could use those points sort of to frame our location and try to figure out what the earth spin would look like if the celestial sphere was actually stationary what the earth spin would look like in order to give us a sort of illusion and we found that and we found that the earth is on an angle it's on a 20 something degree angle Right? The the axis isn't straight up and down with the uh, plane of the solar system. It's at like a 20-something degree angle. And we're spinning. But the spin, it, we also like sort of wobble. We have oscillations. And... At the time, those oscillations weren't... I'm not, I'm not saying that we had it for the perfect, but the oscillations were not accounted for, but everything else was accounted for in the models. The models of the Mavericks. The Mavericks who were on the edge of what we knew. And they said, Hey guys, I think that the Earth rotates. And they were, they were shouted at for it. And they were ostracized for it. And then they found the data... They showed it to the people. It didn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And now we know the Earth rotates. And we can send satellites up. And the satellites can look back. And you can see the Earth's rotation. There are geosent... There are... Like satellites. I know Japan has one. I know that China has one. I think America just set one up. Oh, these satellites that had the entire Earth in frame, and you can see the rotation. Ugh, <coughs> <coughs> oh, my throat. You can you see the rotation? It's crazy. So I sort of went on on a rambling streak there. About like different things that are You know, kind of intuitive. But yeah, like... These things are... These things have always happened. And... We cannot say... That we're 100% right... About any of them. I mean we thought we were 100% right with geocentrism. And then, like, this Maverick guy, Nicopernicus Copernicus came out and he was like, hey guys, these things don't jive. They don't work. It doesn't match up. Then he was, I think, ultimately killed for it. Don't quote me on that. And then Galileo was like, guys, this guy's right. That Copernicus, this guy that you possibly killed, he's, he's right. And then he was put under house arrest. It has to take his word back. So we can't say that we're 100% right. But people cannot say that, oh, I think the universe should work this way and use that as an argument against data. You can't, you, that that just doesn't work. Because now you can do that with anything. You can do that with climate change. And you can have people saying, Oh, I don't think that climate change exists. You can give them the data and then they deny it. Then you're like, Okay. Alright. You do you, bud. You, you. I'll talk to you. You go over there. Think your own thing, right? But because people say that's not true doesn't mean that things like climate change aren't true. It doesn't. You have to look at the data. No matter what you feel, and I know we're all biased to a certain extent, it's just part of human nature, but no matter how you feel, you have to follow the data, and there's a whole thing going right now in archaeology, in Egypt, about how there's a possi- there's going to be a possible sort of redating of the Sphinx, of the Great Sphinx, and the Great Pyramid, because the qu- the the quoted date by Egyptologists that they're what five thousand years old. They don't, they don't match up with geologic record. And I have geologists going down there. I think one of them is uh, out of Boston University, Dr. Robert Schock. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast, that's how I know. Um, he went down there and he was like, guys, this doesn't work. The weathering on the Sphinx, how has been worn down by time? It doesn't work with an arid climate. So you have to go all the way back to when Egypt was, more, was wetter, when you had rainstorms in that part of Africa, which may date the Sphinx to 12,000 years old or older. So you have to follow the data. And as far as the Sphinx, like... I mean, I before I saw this podcast, and before I read up on other people who were looking into the sort of thing, and read up a little bit on it, I did. I I was like, okay, guys, this this face is five thousand years old. That that's what it is. And I looked at photographs of it, and I was like, wow, that's a lot of weathering for wind and sand. But I guess five thousand years will do it for you. But then this this guy, Dr. Shock, he went in, he followed the data, and he's like, guys, you're wrong. He goes to the editologist and he's like, you are wrong. This doesn't work. You have in order to get to the truth, there's only one way. There's only one way to get there. And that is to take data, take observations that you have. Not, re- not like real life observations like, oh, I saw this happen at the grocery store. You have to have experimental observations or natural observations, certain biology and all that. You have to have observations of a thing. You have to have a lot of them. You have to have so many observations that from those observations, you can make a conclusion. You can draw a conclusion from the observation. And this is, the reasoning is called induction, right? You, we all heard of deduction, like Sherlock Holmes, like deductive reasoning where you look at a guy and in, I don't know, half a minute, you can figure out, you know, that that like he's a widow who's also a lawyer. He's been out of the country for three weeks and he likes Italian champagne. You can like pull a Sherlock on that through deduction. Even though, I mean, he calls deduction, but it's actually induction. Deduction is saying, I have this grand idea for how things work. I'm going to use it to explain phenomena. So a deductive, a way to deduct, um, like classically would be, okay, I have this idea that all spoons are made of metal. So if I see a spoon, I know it's made of metal. I mean, it's reasonable, right? But what if you see a plastic spoon? Now your reasoning shuts down. Because you say, no, this spoon isn't metal. Because I have this idea that's correct and I know that it's metal. But then you can take it and make observations about it. It's like, wait, that seems a little bit too bendy for... for for a metal spoon, and it's like, well, if I heat it up, it melts. But it's, like, way lower than, like, metal, the melting temperature of metal. It's like, wait a second. If I, if I take it, I can, I can take a, a metal, a metal knife. I can cut it, and, like, you should be able to, like, cut metal with, with metal, right? And this isn't even a, like, a... High quality knife like I, I can I can cut it and you make all these observations you're like guys this this there's no way this is metal and you take that data and you go up to the guy who made this deductive uh, this deductive reason for why the spoons actually metal and you saw and you say okay uh, this isn't metal and here's why boom 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 and now that person had to change his mind because there's an exception to his rule if there's an exception to this you really have to change the rule. That's that that's at least how science works. You can't if he there's a if there's an exception to a law, then you have problems. And that was another rant. That that shouldn't have happened. That shouldn't well, whatever. Whatever. It's more time. But yeah, you hit just whatever it is. And again, no matter how many times I say it, people are still going to be triggered by Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. They're going to be triggered by him because he said the quote to start this episode he said, The universe has no obligation to make sense to you, which means it doesn't have to match your already held beliefs about how the universe works doesn't have to match them but if you take data and you take hundreds and thousands of observations and you pull from them and you say this is a conclusion about the universe now you have progress and now you have a discovery and now you have a paradigm which to work technology. And now you have quantum computing. And now you have new ways of generating electricity. And you have new ways to, of communicating. And have all this technology that comes out of your inductive reasoning. So if there is a point to this podcast, and I hope there is, but I may not have made it. you have to inductively reason. You have to look at things. And I'm talking about science here, right? Because doing this in other fields may not work because there's just too much to get around. Like, international relations, like, taking exceptions and making them the rule, like, do you really want that? Like, do you really want, like, if there's... In a neighborhood, if, um, if theft is rampant, should you say that, the, that society leads to theft? Should you say that? Or should you be like, no, society should be perfect and we want no theft. And then act upon that. Maybe that's a better thing, a, a better strategy to do things in the social sphere. But in the sciences and in logic and in reasoning and in holding beliefs about how things work, about how physical phenomena work, about how systems interact, you have to look at everything. You have to look at everything, everything you can at least, and pull a conclusion from there rather than having a conclusion in your head already and making and, and justifying the observations in that model, right? You take data and make a model out of it. You don't have a model. You don't make up a model and justify data that way. You can have a model based on data, and new data may match up with it, but you shouldn't have this pre-prescribed model of reality, and have to make like logical fallacies and all this uh, in order to say, in order to make certain observations work or dispel those observations altogether, right? And uh, yeah, that's. Did I just make a point? Wow, first episode, I've made a point. Wow, that's amazing anyways, but yeah, that's my point and this is another Neil Tyson quote actually um, Which sort of works in conjunction and it's that the cool thing with science and I'll expand this the cool thing with logical pursuits in general and especially science, because science is a study of the natural world, is that it's true, however it is, whether or not you believe in it. And I think that that, and a restatement of the importance of looking at data, When you are making any sort of argument even even in the social sphere, I just said that's it. That's an exception But even the social sphere like if you're having a political debate The person with more data wins Make sure your data is credible by the way like don't get into Like people on the far left and the far right Are like they make up data and they have anecdotes and and all this make sure your data is credible and then Slam the person with data, have so much data they like drown in the data. Then you win, and you have and you win the argument. And if that person changed their mind, well, they're not thinking, they're not exercising inductive reasoning. Think about it the only people who are stubborn in debate who don't change their mind are either the ones who know they have better data or the ones who don't have good data, but are using deductive reasoning in order to justify their beliefs. So, to end, um, just follow the data. Whatever that is. However you take that, you just have to follow the data. And, um, yeah, this was episode one of the New University Project. Um, after this, I'm not sure it's going to pan out well, but I have uh, my warm up, my vocal warm up for before I started recording. Uh, I just recorded myself reading the first page of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. And it's it's really bad. Like it's it's not it's not good at all. Um but I'll include that because whatever, it's a fun thing. And um hopefully until next time, if anyone has any suggestions for what I'll do next, I'll heavily consider it because I honestly Aside from a couple ideas for how things can go, I I want to leave it up to you guys. If you're interested, I'll keep going. And I'll probably make a couple episodes after this, um, even if I don't receive any feedback. But after that, if you guys want me to keep going, I'll keep going. If you guys want me to cover something, I will cover it. Um... And yeah, yeah. That wow, that's the first episode. Anyways, yeah, this this is the new university project. Uh, my super awkward reading of *The Great Gatsby* is coming up, and take care. All right, uh, episode one of the podcast. Uh, time for a bit of a warm up. Page one of *The Great Gatsby*. Hmm. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me a. An... This is why it's warm up. My father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my head ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all people in this world haven't had the advantage that you've had. He didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I am inclined to reserve all judgments—a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me and has also made me the victim of a few, of not uh, of not a few veteran bores. The abnormal mind is quick to detect and attach itself to this quality when it appears in a normal person. So it became that in college I was unjustly accused of being a politician because I was privy to the secret griefs of wild unknown men. Most of these confidences were unsought, frequently I feigned sleep, preoccupation, or hostile levity when i <clears throat> levity when I realized by some unmistakable sign that an intimate revelation was quivering over the horizon for the.